This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Brendan Matthews, author of the novel The World of Tomorrow. Matthew's writing has appeared in Glimmer Train and the Best American Short Stories, among other publications. His novel, The World of Tomorrow, covers just a week in time in 1939, but tells the story of a loosely knit group of individuals whose lives move closer and closer as the days advance. At the story's center is Francis Dempsey, who, along with his shell-shocked brother Michael, head from Ireland to New York after stealing a small fortune from an IRA safe house and detonating a bomb in the process. Once in New York, the Dempseys meet up with their older brother, a musician, all while Francis is being pursued by IRA members out for revenge and their hired assassin. We began by talking about the ambition of this novel and Matthew's inclination to write such a big story. I knew from the beginning I wanted to write a big, sprawling story. And the more time I spent with it, and I spent a lot of time on the book, it was uh, probably start to finish uh, about seven and a half years. Um, And during that time, um, characters just kept presenting themselves. So I think I started with the the core, with the three Dempsey brothers at the center of it. But the more time I spent with the book, um, I just sort of got fascinated by all these other characters who started out as just people in the orbit of one or other of those those brothers, and then over the years became, I hope, fully realized and, and fleshed out characters themselves whose lives and whose uh, environments became uh, as fascinating to me and as necessary to the book as any of the original characters did. I would basically say for, for our listeners that the world of tomorrow, at, at its core are the Dempsey brothers, specifically Francis, who has left Ireland and he's leaving in the wake of an accidental gift that he got where he went to a, a safe IRA home. Yeah, he was expecting a sort of safe house. He He's at his father's funeral. He's in prison at the time and he's released for a day to go to his father's funeral. Um, where he meets his brother, his younger brother, who's in the seminary studying to be a priest. And at the end of the funeral, um, a group of older men approach them and uh, have concocted an escape plan for Francis. Uh, And the brothers grew up not knowing their father was involved with the IRA during the uh, Irish War of Independence. So this, who these men are is kind of a mystery to them, but they give them a map and say, go to this safe house and you can plan your next step. When they get to the safe house, they find out it's actually an uh, active bomb factory. There was a bombing campaign that the IRA was trying to get off the ground in 1939. So the brothers show up there and make a hash of everything going on in the house. Uh, The house blows up. One of the brothers is badly injured, but Francis ends up with this cash box in his hands that that enables uh, a very um, uh, upper class sort of flight from Ireland to New York. Why was 1939 of interest to you when you started writing this? Why is that time period something you wanted to visit? Well, partly it was it had to do with some family stories that inspired uh, some of the characters. My grandfather uh, was an Irish immigrant, came to the U.S. in 1929 to be a, an arranger in a big band, in one of the big jazz bands of the era. And so Martin, who's the brother who's already in the U.S., is 
I guess very loosely, very loosely based on my grandfather because he's also playing in a big band and is also an Irish immigrant who came over in 29. And I wanted to give him enough time to get get his feet under him and have enjoyed some success and then maybe have hit a bit of a plateau. Uh, and so that put me in the 30s. And the more I looked into it, 1939 was just one of those uh, hinge years in history where so much happens. We, we look at it from this vantage point right now and see it as a moment right before everything comes apart. And so the book is set during a single week in June of 1939. And in April, the World's Fair opened, which was this moment of great hope. And then in September, the Second World War would start, which was you know, going to be this uh, world-scale catastrophe. So setting the book right between that moment of optimism and that moment of uh, disaster seemed like the right place to go. Because a lot of the characters find themselves, for a lot of reasons, kind of caught between those two poles, whether things are going to go just the way they want or whether things are going to spin out of control. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Brendan Matthews, author of the novel The World of Tomorrow. So tell me a little bit more about Francis. I mean, he's he's the main character. He broke out of jail to out, he went to his father's funeral, but he was let out of jail for that and then escaped and got on this ship to America and took on this other persona. And he's with his younger brother, Michael, who um, lost his hearing. And and I'm just wondering if you could talk about who Francis is and his trajectory and writing about him, especially because I think you were in Ireland for a while when you were writing this. Yeah, I spent four months in Ireland on a Fulbright. Uh, my whole family went over. We, my wife and I have four kids, so we took the whole family and moved them over there. And we lived in Cork for four months, which was a really uh, important way to get grounded in location and history and, and get a better sense of the history that the, the Dempsey brothers would have come out of and their parents would have been part of. But Francis, he's a bit of a scoundrel. He's kind of a rogue. He's uh, somebody who aspires for more I and mean, he wants to live this grand life, but he's sort of getting by as a petty smuggler um, in, uh, in Dublin uh, before the novel gets going. And, you know, he's done this, well, he's done this thing that's either terrible or wonderful in, um, in fleeing with his brother and bringing uh, his younger brother with him to, to Manhattan. And Francis is enjoying this great reward. He suddenly has all this money and he's, you know, setting himself up as the most eligible bachelor in the city. Everyone thinks he's a Scottish Lord. He puts on this sort of ridiculous act that every time he bluffs, he seems to win. But with him, he has his brother who was really badly injured in the same accident that brought this great fortune to Francis. And for the first half, maybe third of the book, um, Francis just can't believe his luck. I mean, he's everything he tries works. And the more he raises the stakes, the more he wins and he's being toasted by all these wealthy families and every door is open to him, but the book doesn't let him get, get away too easily. I and mean, he's being pursued and eventually his pursuer catches up to him and there's a cost to be paid for all this good fortune that he has. And so one of the plot lines of the novel is driving Francis towards, um, a reckoning with, uh, who pays the cost for these these dreams he's been pursuing? You know, he's been having a great time, but sooner or later the bill is going to come due. And when it does come due, um, it's for more than he had ever expected. Were there certain questions about human nature that were nagging at you that led you to his character or any of the other characters? Um, there's another character named Tom that's 
it's interesting because you're talking about, you know, Francis having to meet his reckoning. And Tom is also meeting sort of the consequences of, of his life. I mean, there's so many characters in there, but I'm wondering if there was essential questions about our humanity that you were trying to fold in there or, or explore yourself. Yeah, well, a lot of it revolved around questions about obligation, uh, obligation to, uh, to those that we love or obligation to those that maybe we don't love at all, but who have some claim on us in, in one way or another. Um, I, you know, Francis thinks of himself as kind of a free agent. And by nature of the family that he grew up in, um, the Dempsey brothers uh, live in Cork when they're younger and then their mother dies um, in an accident. They're told it's a car accident, but it's actually tied up in the the Irish Civil War. And their father pulls them out of the city and raises them in a small town where they all kind of um, nurse their wounds kind of quietly and separately. And then Martin leaves and then Francis disappears and ends up in jail. And then Michael goes off to seminary. So they've kind of all been very led very separate lives. And the book suddenly puts them all back together. And it, I wanted to think about, you know, what do we owe to family members and what costs are we willing to bear or do we force on others to get the things that we want? And with Tom Cronin, he's you know, involved in the, the Dempsey family from, from way back and now he's pursuing them for this. And he's somebody who has done terrible things in his past, but has reached a point in his life where he's found a bit of peace that maybe he feels he doesn't deserve, but he desperately wants to preserve it. And the novel asks, well, what's he willing to do to preserve that peace that he's found? And who else is he willing to hurt in order to protect the ones that he loves? So a lot of, a lot of the book came to questions about duty and obligation and family love and whether redemption is possible and who deserves it, whether deserving matters, you know, whether it's just about what we're willing to do or not. So you you obviously also had to do some research about history because you have sort of what's going on in Ireland and then what's going on in America um, musically and politically and, you know, even with real events like um, the World's Fair. So I'm wondering, I guess, first, being in Ireland, you know, how did that inform your book? I know I've read, you know, just that hearing people speak and their cadence helped you, but I'm wondering what else either with the research or, or providing sort of more breath into your book, how being there helped you? It really helped me with thinking a lot about where the Dempsey's came from, because it, it was easy for me, well, not easy, but I guess the, the first um, part of the book was just imagining what life in 1939 in New York would have been like. But then that required me to go backwards and think about where all these characters had come from. And as the book moves from character to character, it tries to fill in a bit about um, what had brought them all to this point, to this one week. And being in Ireland and being in Cork, particularly being able to walk these streets uh, through parts, we lived in an old part of the town that looks a lot like uh, Cork looked um, 100 years ago, helped me think about um, what that space would have been like and how the the war that was fought, which was not a, you know, grand armies in the field kind of war. It really was a war. They call it an intelligence war. It was a war of assassinations and kidnappings that took place right on city streets. So to think about that space and how that would have happened. And also to think about the happy memories the Dempsey's would have had of their time living near the university and where they would have played and, and what sort of bright moments they would have had. That was important. And then I spent a lot of time talking to um, people in town and reading through oral histories and finding out about this moment in Irish history, which was really contentious. I mean, there's still a lot of debate over, you know, who killed whom and why and where the bodies were buried. 
Uh, and so to have this moment that, you know, is uh, almost 100 years distant, but still very difficult to talk about, um, helped me to think about all the silences and the secrets uh, in the Dempsey family, in my own family, in some ways, you know, the stories we tell each other and the stories that we don't. And I tried to have that inform um, who the characters were, you know, what they were willing to talk about. They're all big storytellers, so they never have a problem saying something. Uh, but there's some really important gaps in their own history that they don't know about or that some people do but don't want to bring to light. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Brendan Matthews, author of the novel, The World of Tomorrow. I'm just wondering about your personal influence with music. And what do you think about bringing something that's so emotional to the page, meaning, you know, music is, is, it is a sign of the era, but it's also, you know, deeply personal to people and has so much visceral impact on the people who, who play it and in your story. It was a really important thing to try to think about how, um, how it felt to play the music. And, you know, Martin makes decisions about um, his life and his career based on the kind of music he wants to play and the kind that he doesn't. And so that was a really important driver for at least his part of the book. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge music fan of, of all sorts. Uh, like I said, I really dove into big band music, which I, well, I went into the book not really liking very much. It was almost one of the um, obstacles I had to overcome. Like I knew I wanted to set the book in the 30s and that meant big band music. Um, and I really didn't like big band music. I love 50s jazz, but uh, it took me a while to come around. And then uh, over the course of years, i you know, really came to love um, Count Basie in particular and Duke Ellington and bits of Benny Goodman. Um, but my, like myself, I don't play an instrument. I can't play an instrument. I can't sing a note. My children will tell you that uh, I'm probably tone deaf. Um, they all have wonderful voices. They sing like angels and they must get it from their mother because they didn't get it from dad. But I love listening to music and trying to think about that, that uh, experience of what it must be, especially to be in a band and to be creating with others at the same time. And maybe it's just, um, a grass is always greener thing for a writer. You know, you do so much of this by yourself, um, in quiet places and quiet moments. And then you see musicians on stage and they're doing something publicly, or even if they're just rehearsing, they're doing thing at least in collaboration with others. Um, and it seems a bit to me like magic, what they're able to do. And so I wanted to capture some of that magic in the book. So while you're you're very steeped in reality and history in this book and and really looking at these moral conundrums these characters are facing there's also a a little bit of a fantastical element to your story in that the character Michael who's the youngest brother who lost his hearing and might have had something else go wrong with his brain in the um bombing has these conversations with Yates he 
he's basically like the only voice that he can hear. And there is, you know, psychological history in that, in that their father was very into the classics and, you know, read all these books with his children. But I'm wondering if you can talk about this element of the book. Yeah, at first it was, I think I introduced Yates as a character, um, you know, when I was in the early writing stages of this, uh, when I was mostly thinking about stories and I wasn't sure this was a novel anyone was ever going to see. And in some ways that takes a lot of pressure off because I thought I can do whatever I want here. And I knew that Yates had died in January of 1939 and Yates was really interested in spiritualism and what came next after the death of the physical body. So I thought, well, I'll put Yates in the book and see what happens. Um, and it became a way as I was writing, uh, in, in the book, whenever I was stuck and needed something to do or stuck with any other characters, um, Yates and Michael had this great rapport. So I could always, I could always write dialogue with Yates and Michael. Um, it seemed like a way of getting the wheels turning and getting things off the ground. But over time, I, you know, I really had to think about why he belonged in here other than just as a, uh, a dare to myself or as a, as a device. And, you know, he was somebody who had a great deal of, of, spiritual longing. Um, he was somebody who was, um, involved, um, in the struggle for independence in Ireland, but he was very interested in the cultural side. He was really, um, squirrely on the question of action. Like he didn't like any of the people that were actually out in the streets. He thought they were all kind of lower class bounders and thugs and ruffians. Uh, so that also that, that ambivalence I, I wanted to capture. And he was also, you know, I started reading his letters, uh, letters to his wife and letters to others. And he was sometimes a charmer. He was really cantankerous. He was a snob. I mean, he was a good character to insert in the book in a lot of ways because he just had all these contradictions surrounding him. Um, and I started to think about what it meant. You know, Michael is haunted by the ghost of Yates or at least is aware of the ghost of Yates. And what did it mean for the generations of writers who came after Yates in some ways to be haunted by his ghost? You know, every writer uh, every Irish poet for a few generations was compared to Yeats, and a lot of them struggled against that. So I wanted to think about that presence too, the histories that we want to embrace or the traditions we want to embrace and some of the others that we're forced to contend with. Um, so he came up that way too. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Brendan Matthews, author of the novel The World of Tomorrow. I think within the book, there's also definite questions of class and who we are and who we present to the world. Because as Francis is coming over and he has all this money that it's not how he grew up, but he can be first class on the ship and, and meet these very wealthy people and fall in love with the daughter of, of this wealthy family he meets. And I think he really loved her. You know, they thought that he came from royalty and was related to the king and queen. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the question of, of class and identity. Sure. It is one of the things in the book, you know, there's these there are these hard lines that are drawn about class and who's allowed to go to certain places. But the Americans that he meets, you know, they've had their money for a generation or two at most. And the ways in which that they acquired it, you know, the, there's a character, Mr. Bingham, who's sort of a robber baron type, you know, who himself was dirt poor when young. And now he lives in this castle on, on Fifth Avenue. Um, so it's a pretty thin line that separates, you know, those at the top from, you know, from those in the Depression. I guess it's not so thin. I mean, the line is a line of money. And that's really the only thing that decides who's on top and who's, um, who's suffering and, and struggling. 
And Francis uses this to his advantage. Um, he puts on an accent and pretends to be a lord and steer, steers clear of the English, so I think he feels would have a better radar for this. And he's embraced by the Americans who are so captivated by the trappings of, of class or of a place where um, birth seems to matter for something or you know, the idea that there could be a castle in hundreds of years of history. They're really quite, quite fascinated by that. And Francis is puzzled by this because he expects Americans are going to be all hyper-democratic, small R Republicans you know, who believe in, uh, in equality and, uh, and opportunity. And he finds that that's really not the case. And, and it just seemed like something worth exploring in a book that's set in the 30s when we think of you know, so many people um, suffering during the Great Depression. And yet through all that, there were those who, you know, who got through that period just fine. And Francis wants to be part of that and is trying to figure out what it takes to, to fake his way into that group. The Binghams that he meets, he he falls for their daughter, Anaset, and they they're very excited because they want this pairing of, you know, wealth and status for their daughter. And he is obviously hiding who he really is. But he has a moment with Anaset where she's playing the violin and it's probably like one of the most profound moments in the book for Francis and, and having a deep moment of feeling. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about creating this scene and what it meant to you and how you felt like it added to Francis's character. I really wanted to find a way to, to go deep with Francis because he's trying hard to keep everything very superficial. Uh, he's masquerading as someone he isn't and he's you know, everything to him is a lark. And it would be easy to see him as uh, just a pretender and uh, someone who's there to motivate the plot by uh, kind of screwing up or uh, stumbling into better situations. And also there was the question of Anazette, who he knows, in the course of the book, he only knows her for a week or so. And I wanted to think about what it would be that would, um, that would draw them together that went more than just skin deep, uh, that was more than just him seeing her. And he's not the type of, for, he's not a love at first sight type, so that, that didn't seem to work for me. So this moment when she's playing music, um, she's playing the violin. She plays the Kreutzer Sonata. And suddenly listening to the music, he's reminded of a moment from his own past um, back in Cork before his mother died. His mother was a, a musician herself and a music teacher. And being in this place where his whole family was together around the holidays and one of his mother's students was playing that song. And it just strikes him. Um, and it goes it goes deeper than anything he's experienced up to that point in the book. Um, it forces him outside of the, the masquerade of being this Scottish Lord and, and kind of tripping along merrily through New York. Um, and he also looks at Anazette, who's someone he's thought of as a bit of a, a porcelain doll that her family has tried hard to dress her up and put her in front of him, um, in a way that would attract his attention. And he sees the look on her face and he knows that that kind of music can't come from someone who is as precious and protected as Anazette seems to be to him. So it forces him to think about her too. And in the earlier moments of the book, they're in Francis's point of view. Anazette is maybe given a little, she's sort of shortchanged because she's underestimated by everyone and Francis is one of them. And I wanted from that point in the novel to force Francis to take her seriously. And maybe if the reader is underestimated or two, to take her seriously, to recognize that Anazette is somebody who wants certain things deeply, even if she's confused about what those are, and who to recognize that if Francis is going to um, fall for her or not, um, that this has to be taken seriously. He can't just toy with her emotions um, because she's a substantial person in herself. And it kind of comes together 
in that moment when he's he's listening to her play and he's responding to to the music that he hears. Is there anything that you want to discuss about this that I didn't ask you, like themes or characters or anything like that? Well, one of the things that was important to me in writing the book uh, was that these characters in the novel, most of them are immigrants or refugees or migrants, fugitives. They've all come from somewhere else. So I, I really wanted to use New York as a place people come to in search of something. And when I started writing the book, this idea that it was a, a novel full of immigrants, full of people who were on the move, people trying to claim a piece of the American dream, whether they're African-American musicians from Baltimore, as Hooper and Lorena are, or they're, um, you know, robber barons like the Binghams who've come from the West to settle in New York to establish themselves, or someone like the Dempsey brothers or like Lily. Uh, that seemed to me a very American story. And there wasn't, in some ways, inarguably American. And during the course of the writing of the book in the last year or so, that idea suddenly became politicized in ways that I had never imagined. I think you look, you look for ways the book, ways you look for ways that 1939 resonates with the present. Um, but then the culture sort of shifts under your feet in certain ways. So that was one thing that was part of the writing of the book from the beginning. I wanted a book that was, um, broad in its scope, but also that really was um, a story of strivers and dreamers. And the, I felt like the world I was writing into wasn't exactly the same world as the one the book came out in. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Brendan Matthews, author of the novel, The World of Tomorrow. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? You know, we've talked a lot about music, and I think the best, well, one of the best short stories ever written is uh, Sonny's Blues by James Baldwin, and it's probably the best story about music um, and about what it means to make music, and it's also a story about families and brothers. Um, so it's one I turn to a lot, and I'm just going to read from the last, um, the last two paragraphs here. And this is when uh, the narrator goes to see his brother, Sonny, who's a jazz musician playing in a club. And it's the first time in the, in the story he's had a chance to see Sonny really in his element. Then they all gathered around Sonny and Sonny played. Every now and again, one of them seemed to say, amen. Sonny's fingers filled the air with life, his life. But that life contained so many others. And Sonny went all the way back. He really began with a spare, flat statement of the opening phrase of the song. Then he began to make it his. It was very beautiful because it wasn't hurried and it was no longer a lament. I seemed to hear with what burning he had made it his, with what burning we had yet to make it ours, how we could cease lamenting. Freedom lurked around us and I understood at last that he could help us to be free if we would listen, that he would never be free until we did. Yet there was no battle in his face now. I heard what he had gone through and would continue to go through until he came to rest in earth. He had made it his that long line of which we knew only mama and daddy. And he was giving it back as everything must be given back so that passing through death, it can live forever. I saw my mother's face again and felt for the first time how the stones of the road she had walked on must have bruised her feet. I saw the moonlit road where my father's brother died and it brought something else back to me and carried me past it. I saw my little girl again and felt Isabel's tears again. And I felt my own tears begin to rise. And I was yet aware that this was only a moment, that the world waited outside as hungry as a tiger and that trouble stretched above us longer than the sky. Then it was over. 
Creole and Sonny let out their breath, both soaking wet and grinning. There was a lot of applause and some of it was real. In the dark, the girl came by and I asked her to take drinks to the bandstand. There was a long pause while they waited up there in the indigo light. And after a while, I saw the girl put a scotch and milk on the top of the piano for Sonny. He didn't seem to notice it, but just before me, they started playing again. He sipped from it and looked toward me and nodded. Then he put it back on top of the piano. For me then, as they began to play again, it glowed and shook above my brother's head like the very cup of trembling. Anything else you want to say about why you chose this? I think it's just, it's so beautiful. It's a passage that connects so much of history and of family and of the experience of, uh, of one brother seeing another, knowing what he's been through and honoring that experience. Um, I mean, it's just, it's gorgeous. It's one of those things I, I teach as well. And often I'll read in class, you know, read a passage or ask students to read. And I've learned that that's one that uh, it's difficult to read uh, aloud in a classroom full of other students too. Or maybe it's the right one to read because it always gets, I always get a little choked up reading that one. It's just so beautiful. And can you read something you wrote? It can be something that was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or just something you like. What I w- wanted to read actually is the first paragraph of the book because it's one that um, didn't get settled until really the very end. So, so much time went into the book and there were a lot of first paragraphs, but trying to think of how to begin it was always something that um, really troubled me. But this is what we settled on. The first chapter is called At Sea. Francis never expected the silverware would be his undoing. Seated in the first-class dining room of the MV Britannic, halfway between the old world and the new, he surveyed a landscape of crystal stemware and bone china, of crisp linen and centerpieces ripe with flowers he had never seen, and colors he had never dreamed. High above, the coffered ceiling glowed, its milk glass panels outlined in brass. A frieze marched across the upper reaches of the room, an angular art deco skirmish of horses, stags, and dogs. Every wall, even the air itself, was awash in hues of honey and amber, and at every table sat men and women, gilded in good fortune and turned out in tuxedos or gowns or regimental dress. But what did all this abundance matter when his own plate was blockaded by a medieval armory in miniature? He counted five forks, four spoons, and at least as many knives. He hadn't a clue where to begin. Do you want to say anything else about that? Sure. I think I, when I first started the book, and for a long time, the beginning had this very grand 19th century uh, opening. You know, this um, it is a truth universally acknowledged style opening to it. And I because I wanted to find this big voice to tell a long story. And what I settled on, too, as, as I did throughout the book, was um, just go right to character. Get in the head of the characters. See the world as they see it. And let the story go from there. Um, I think I also feel I realized like after I'd finally settled on this as a last paragraph that ending it with he hadn't a clue where to begin was perhaps as true of me as it was of Francis at this moment as he's faking his way through the upper crust. Where do you write? Um, and really anywhere I can. Um, coffee shops, libraries, uh, in the car waiting to pick up the kids from soccer practice, probably most often at night at the kitchen table. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Usually the problem is getting to writing. I think it's, it's too easy to get away from it um, with all the other things going on in life, with work and family and just with life in general. I think that getting to writing for me is usually um, the more difficult thing. But when I need to clear my head, uh, we live in, in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts. And fortunately, there's lots of great outdoor spaces um, where there's... Uh, no Wi-Fi service where I can go and take the dog and just walk through the woods and 
unscramble whatever I'm doing and in walking, try to maybe piece together uh, things for the next time I sit down. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my wife is my first reader. Um, she is uh, a very sharp reader, a very tough critic, um, and also someone who knows probably better than anyone what I'm capable of, and so she knows when I'm coasting, and she's good at calling me out on that. So she's the first to see anything. And how have you dealt with rejection? Um, well, nobody likes rejection. It's always, it's always, uh, it always stings, but I think I've, I've tried to learn from it. Um, there have been stories I've sent out that have been rejected because they just weren't good enough. And there have also been stories I've sent out that have been rejected for really no reason I can discern other than that the person who read it didn't like it. And I think both of those, well, learning to recognize the difference between those is a really important thing for any writer. Um, when is it not good enough? And when did you just send it to the wrong person? And um, both of those require a response, but a different kind of response. So I've tried to, I've tried to learn. That's the high-minded answer, right? I've tried to learn from my rejection um, and not just feel uh, wounded by it. And what is your favorite word? I don't have a favorite word, but there were words I really wanted to make sure I included in the novel. Uh, one of them is banjax, which is a bit of an Irishism, B-A-N-J-A-X. So if something banjaxed, it's just screwed up. Something went wrong and the whole situation's banjaxed. So I wanted to fit that in. And then spatchcock was another one, uh, which is usually refers to uh, the act of sort of slicing apart a chicken so it can be roasted flat. Um, but I found another use for it in the book. But Banjax and Spatchcock both had this great, sharp, nervous angularity that I felt like uh, made sense in the book. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.